I want to, um, as we begin here this morning, just uh, offer a clarification um, from a, a phrase that I said last week. In regard to the Trinity, I said how God has chosen to manifest himself in three persons, comprising one God. And I, I just want to say that chosen was a, um, I think, a poor choice of words because it can make it seem almost like there's this fourth God who, for the purposes of his creation, manifested himself in these other three persons, in a, a sense, creating them. And will, since Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are all three eternal and part of the same one God. I just think it would have been better if I had left the word chosen out of the phrase and, and maybe even possibly manifest. So it just simply would have been how God is three distinct persons comprising one God. So for that, my apologies. And uh, I am always thankful when you all are acting like Bereans out there and bring things to my attention. Let's go ahead and pray. Father in heaven, we do thank you. We thank you that you are indeed one God, three distinct people, personalities, all of the same essence. We thank you, Lord, for um, just who you are. We thank you that you are God the Father, we thank you that you are God the Son, and we thank you that you are God the Holy Spirit. And we would ask for your Spirit's help this morning as we continue to go through just a whole bunch of different texts to better understand the work of your Spirit, especially in the Old Testament. So Lord, I just pray for your help this morning, and we pray that um, our, our time in your word would be edifying to us and bring glory to you and your, your son and your spirit. We pray these in your son Jesus' name. Amen. So as we continue our study today on the Holy Spirit, one of the <clears throat> questions that often comes up is really about the differences between the New Testament and the Old Testament in regard to the Holy Spirit. And, you know, I was trying to think of a snappy illustration here, and inevitably any illustration will fall short, and sometimes I think, ah, oh, is that just too silly? But it's what pops into my head. And so whether that's of the Spirit or not, I don't know, all right? But, but I was, <laughs> it made me think when I was a kid, and if you grew up in the 70s, right, then you had your, your television. We had one of those kind of big console, giant TV sets. And uh, of course, if the channel needed to be changed, who changed the channel? You, the kid, right? Exactly. Uh, Mom or dad would like, would you just go change the channel? And you had, I don't know what, a half a dozen channels that actually worked because you had the antenna on your roof. Well, I will never forget, never forget the day, mid-70s, I think it was, maybe late 70s, I don't know. And uh, this man shows up at our door. And my parents let him in. And he starts doing all this stuff to the TV and drilling holes and stuff comes in through the back and attaches to the TV. And next thing you know, we have a box on top of our TV with 40 channels. It was the cable man. 
And he installed cable in our house. And now we didn't just have six channels. We had 1 through 20. And then there was a little switch, an A-B switch. And you could hit the B. Now, it doesn't mean that we had 40 at that time. Cable was still kind of new. Maybe we had 20 channels we could watch, right? But the point is, is man, we went from something pretty great to something even better. And I just would say... When we're thinking about the Holy Spirit <coughs> and going from Old Testament to New Testament, the Holy Spirit had some very specific roles to play in the Old Testament. But when we get to the New, his role changes somewhat. It gets expanded upon. It becomes even more significant. But today we want to continue with the work of the Holy Spirit In the Old Testament. Now, last week we kicked off this Holy Spirit mini series with an introduction to the Holy Spirit, which included some historical context for how the church has understood the work of the Spirit over the last 2,000 years. And, And this is part of the reason I wanted us to embark on this study because over the years, the doctrine of the Holy Spirit has been so misunderstood. It has been misapplied, and might we say, full-on abused. And we see this, as I mentioned, especially in the extreme charismatic church. And I, and I use that word extreme there to identify with some of the churches even that I mentioned last week, such as Bethel Church up in Redding, California, those that were then a part of the third wave, wave movement and out of Toronto, and we'll get more into that. <coughs> Excuse me, even um, uh, next week and the week after next. On the flip side, what we've also seen is, is in the more conservative Bible churches, we have sometimes also erred because, in an effort to not be identified with the extreme charismatics, right? We've taken that pendulum, and instead of coming back to that halfway, which we would say is solid Bible understanding, then we've gone the other way. And uh, in this, we have at times even uh, quenched the Spirit, or sometimes maybe even resisted the Holy Spirit. So, Along with the historical aspects that we looked at last week, we also learned about the deity of the Holy Spirit. We talked about the personality of the Holy Spirit. Now we move on to the work of the Holy Spirit. And then again, specifically today in the context of the Old Testament. I thought it was going to be Old Testament and Gospels. Man, as I was doing this study this week, so, so my sermon notes, I try to keep them at 20 pages with my font and all this stuff, and that tells me I'm at about 50 minutes. I was at like 27, 28 pages. I'm like, oh man, we got to start cutting stuff here. So, uh, so we're actually, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to extend one, one Sunday. Next week we'll talk about the Holy Spirit in the context of the Gospels, and then after that we'll talk about Holy Spirit in the rest of the New Testament and the life of a believer. That being said, if you uh, will turn in your Bibles to Ezekiel chapter 36 and go ahead and stand, if you are able, for the reading of God's Word. Ezekiel chapter 36, beginning in verse 25. Now, in this uh, section here, God wants Ezekiel to pass on to the nation of Israel how even though Israel has sinned greatly 
against God, there will come a time when God will vindicate himself amongst the nations. They will all know that he is the Lord because he has proved himself holy among Israel in the sight of those nations. This is where we pick up Ezekiel chapter 36. Uh, We're just reading verses 25 through 27. The Lord says, Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes And you will be careful to observe my ordinances. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Now I read this passage because it is an Old Testament reference to the Holy Spirit. But of course looking ahead to the New Testament. And we will come back to this passage a little bit later on in our message. Now as I um, get going here, I, I know... The two things that most of you primarily want to know about the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. Number one might be, how are people saved in the Old Testament? And is their salvation a work of the Holy Spirit? And secondly, does the Holy Spirit indwell people in the Old Testament the way that he indwells people in the New Testament? And these are great questions to ask, and we are absolutely going to answer both of them. But before we get there, let's just take a little step back for a few minutes here and consider just a little bit about the relationship between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, or as we call it, the Old Testament and the New Testament. First, you have to know that while there are some differences with the way the Holy Spirit operates between the old and new, there is also great continuity in regards to the Spirit. Augustine is known for saying this phrase, the old is in the new revealed, the new is in the old concealed. And yes, there's a lot of truth to that. In discussing the revelation of the Trinity in both Old and New Testaments, theologian B.B. Warfield said, The Old Testament revelation of God is not corrected by the fuller revelation which follows it, but is only perfected, extended, and enlarged. End quote. Sinclair Ferguson in his book on the Holy Spirit says, quote, There is an incompleteness about the Old Testament's revelation of the Spirit, just as there is in its revelation of the Son, and for that matter, of the Father. The Spirit had been active among God's people, but His activity was enigmatic, that just means mysterious or obscure, sporadic, theocratic, selective, and in some respects, external. By contrast, in the anticipated new covenant, the Spirit would be poured out in a universal manner, dwelling in them personally and permanently. End quote. <clears throat> Secondly, 
I, I want us all to remember last week how we learned that the Hebrew word for spirit is ruach, which at its core means breath, wind, or spirit. And I shared with you the fact that the main idea of Ruach as spirit in the Old Testament is of power. Such as we see in Micah chapter 3 verse 8 where it says, But as for me, I am filled with the power, with the spirit of the Lord. Now, in other words, we are not so much talking about God in his immaterial form as spirit, though that certainly would be applied. Rather, we are talking about the energy and power of God. Ferguson calls it the energy of life in God. In fact, Ferguson continues, when the Ruach Yahweh comes on individuals, they are caught up in the thrust of an alien energy and exercise unusual powers. The faint are raised into action. Exceptional human abilities are demonstrated. Ecstasy may be experienced. Yahweh's ruach, as it were, the blast of God, the irresistible power by which he accomplishes his purposes, whether creative or destructive, God's ruach, therefore, expresses the irresistible force, the all-powerful energy of God in the created order, end quote. I would give a hearty amen to that. So first, let's consider Ruach, power in creation, God's power in creation. And of course, we see an example of this right there at the beginning of Scripture. In Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. That is to say, hovering, fluttering, shaking. This, friends, is divine energy in the act of creating the heavens and the earth. It's God's divine energy. And now we, we know that God, of course, spoke his creation into existence. In Psalm 33 and verse 6, it says, By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the, the breath of his mouth, all their host. Then down in verse 9, for he spoke, and it was done. He commanded, and it stood fast. Here's what's interesting. In Psalm 104 and verse 30, this is uh, referencing all the possessions of the Lord's that are his created order, the psalmist says, you send forth your spirit. They are created. And in Job 33 and verse 4, Job said, the spirit of God has made me and the breath of the Almighty gives me life. So when God said, let there be light, and there was light, and every other word of creation that he spoke after that, you have God as the Holy Spirit bringing it all into existence. This is Ruach Elohim, 
The power of the Lord, the power of God. And we see this, this energy and power every time God acts in the context of his creation. Now this is not to say that only the Father and the Holy Spirit are doing all of the creating. Oh, Scripture is so very clear. The Son is a most active participant in creation. And I had a bunch of those verses, and I thought, oh, that's just for another time. Our focus this morning is going to stay Old Testament, Holy Ruach, okay? That brings us to our second point. Ruach, power in miracles. Power in miracles. Turn, if you will, with me to Isaiah chapter 63. If you're in Ezekiel still, you just go a little bit to the left there. A few books over and you have Isaiah chapter 63, beginning in verse 11. Here the prophet is recalling some of the mercies of God, even amidst the rebellion of God's people, after they had left Egypt for the promised land. As we read this, I want you to be looking for the work of the Holy Spirit, okay? The work of the Holy Spirit in this passage. This is, uh, again, Isaiah 63, beginning in verse 11. We'll go down to verse 14. Then his people remembered the days of old, of Moses. Where is he who brought them up out of the sea with the shepherds of his flock? Where is he who put his Holy Spirit in the midst of them? Who caused his glorious arm to go at the right hand of Moses. Who divided the waters before them to make for himself an everlasting name. Who led them through the depths like the horses in the wilderness. They did not stumble. As the cattle which go down into the valley, the Spirit of the Lord gave them rest. So you led your people to make for yourself a glorious name. Now, did you get that? Because it was the Holy Spirit that oversaw the whole exodus. It was the Holy Spirit who was always there with the people. It was the Holy Spirit who led Moses and the people. It was the Holy Spirit who divided the Red Sea and led them through the wilderness. It was the Holy Spirit who fed them the manna. And the quail and gave them water out of rocks. It was the Holy Spirit who gave them the victory over their enemies. And likewise, it was also the Holy Spirit that that opened up the earth at one point and swallowed up Korah and the sons of Levi for their rebellion against Moses. Followed by the plague that took out another 14,700 people for their grumblings about the first people's rebellion. So by inference here, what can also be said is that any time we see the work of God in the Old Testament, it is by the power of the holy divine Ruach. And this would include things like confusing their languages at Babel or the worldwide flood a a son for Abraham and Sarah, the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, the plagues leading up to the exodus, Israel's victories in the land of Canaan. You remember, and the walls came a-tumbling down, right? The miracles of Elijah and Elisha, including teleporting them a la Star Trek from place to place, 
until Elijah was taken up into glory via a very fiery chariot. Ah, I had a whole other point here I wanted to include about his holy ruach in the providence of God. And the providence is just the outworking of his sovereign plan and will. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to include that in, a, uh, in some kind of post. So we'll, we'll include that because, uh, again, I just had to start cutting stuff here. Number three, ruach, power in God's people. Power in God's people. <clears throat> How do we see this ruach working more specifically in the lives of God's Old Testament saints? It is clear that the Holy Spirit related to selected individuals for certain purposes and tasks. Biblically speaking, we see this show up in three different ways. First, the scripture teaches us that the Holy Spirit was in some people. In Genesis 41 and verse 38, Pharaoh believed that a divine spirit was in Joseph, and that's why he made him his right-hand man. In Daniel chapter 4 and verse 8, King Nebuchadnezzar declares of Daniel, quote, in whom is a spirit of the holy gods? And I related the dream to him. This is affirmed then in chapter 6, verse 3 of Daniel, which says that Daniel possessed an extraordinary spirit. Back in Numbers 27 and verse 18, we have the Lord said to Moses, Take Joshua, the son of Nun, a man in whom is the spirit, and lay your hand on him. And have him stand before Eleazar the priest and before all the congregation and commission him in their sight. So, so this is especially uh, for the purpose of leadership. That the spirit would be in some people like Joshua. For Joshua, of course, replaced Moses to lead the people into the promised land. Now secondly, scripture also teaches us that the Holy Spirit came upon some people. He was in some people. He came upon some people uh, in the context of leadership. Let's return to the Exodus and people wandering around out in the desert when an issue came up with Joshua that brings a, a very interesting answer from his, his mentor Moses. With that, you can go ahead and turn to Numbers chapter 11. Numbers chapter 11. Genesis Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. And we'll pick up in verse 17. <clears throat> Numbers 11, verse 17. Here Moses is, uh, he's starting to feel the weight of leading this very burdensome people. God's answer is to charge 70 elders of Israel with the task of helping Moses to bear the people's burdens. So God instructs Moses and the 70 that have been chosen to gather at the tent of meeting. That would be the tabernacle, right, that they had put together to uh, uh, go with them when they would uh, be in the desert. To which God says this, Numbers chapter 11, beginning in verse 17. Then I will come down and speak with you there. And I will take of the Spirit who is upon you, right? So again, referring to the Spirit being upon Moses. And I will put him, the Spirit, upon them. And they shall bear the burden of the people with you so that you will not bear it alone. Referring to the 
70 elders. Skip down to verse 25. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and spoke to him. And he took of the Spirit who was upon him, again, Spirit being upon Moses, and placed him upon the 70 elders. And when the Spirit rested upon them, they prophesied. But they did not do it again. But two men had remained in the camp. The name of one was Eldad and the name of the other Medad. And the Spirit rested upon them. Oh, very interesting, huh? Now they were among those who had been registered but had not gone out of or not had gone out to the tent. So you had the 70, but you had these two other guys back in the camp, and they prophesied in the camp. Verse 27, so a young man ran and told Moses, said, Eldad and me, Dad, are prophesying in the camp. And then Joseph, the son of Nun, the attendant of Moses from his youth, said, Moses, my Lord, restrain them. But Moses said to him, are you jealous for my sake? Would that all the Lord's people were prophets, that the Lord would put his spirit upon them. Relax, Joshua. It's okay. So even though Moses knew God's spirit would not come upon all people, that was his desire, right? That, that more would have that ability for the glory of the Lord. Now also in this, in this leadership category, in reference to Caleb's younger brother Othniel, in Judges 3.10 it says, The Spirit of the Lord... And that would be Yahweh in this case. The Spirit of the Lord came upon him and he judged Israel. This is also said of Gideon and it's also said of Jephthah. Okay, That they would do this because the Spirit of the Lord came upon them. Samson. Samson is an interesting case. As the scripture says in Judges 13, 24, that quote, The child grew up and the Lord blessed him. And the Spirit of the Lord began to stir him in Mahanadan between Zorah and Eshtael. Then later in chapter 14 and verse 6, um, Samson is confronted by a young lion. And it says that the Spirit of the Lord came upon him mightily. It literally means that it rushed upon him so that he tore him as one tears a young goat, though he had nothing in his hand. But he did not tell his father or mother what he had done. In this case, the Spirit of the Lord comes upon him and gives him this extra strength to do what he does there with this young lion. Let's return to leadership for a minute. Leadership, as Samuel was preparing Saul for the monarchy, in 1 Samuel 10.10, it says, When they came to the hill there, behold, a group of prophets met him. And the Spirit of God came upon him mightily. That's referring to Saul, so that he prophesied among them. Again, leadership And prophesying, here comes the Spirit. David is also one that as Samuel anointed David in front of his father and his brothers, the Scripture says the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon David from that day forward. And of course David got a little nervous after Nathan the prophet confronted him 
and called him to repentance for his sin with Bathsheba and the murder of Uriah. So he prays to God in Psalm 5111. Do you remember his prayer? Do not cast me away from your presence and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Because obviously David knew that the Holy Spirit could leave him. And lastly, the scripture also teaches that the Holy Spirit filled some people. This occurred for the building of the tabernacle. I love this. Exodus 31. For any of you that are artists out there, check this out. Exodus 31, verses 1 to 6. They're going to to build the tabernacle, the tent of meeting. And it says, Now the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, See, I have called by name Bezalel. Now I'm skipping down to verse 3. I have filled him with the Spirit of God in wisdom, in understanding, in knowledge, and in all kinds of craftsmanship to make artistic designs. And then in verse 5, and the cutting of stones and in the carving of wood that he may work in all kinds of craftsmanship. Verse 6, and behold, I myself have appointed with him Aholiab. And in the hearts of all who are skillful, I have put my skill that they may make all that I commanded you. I, just, I love that. Isn't it just remarkable that God would, would fill with his spirit these people, not just for accomplishing, say, the tremendous task of of leading his people or a million plus people for Moses or Joshua, but even when it came to the the artistic endeavor of crafting his tabernacle so as to make it beautiful and to reflect his glory, he does so through his spirit. Now, along with the Holy Spirit being in someone, or coming upon someone, or filling someone, there are also times where the Scripture tells us that the Holy Spirit departed from someone, such as Samson. If we were to go back to chapter 16, verse 20, when he discovers his strength is gone because he got a haircut, but he did not know that the Lord had departed from him. The scripture says, as David was being anointed king, the spirit came upon him mightily. We read that in the next verse of 1 Samuel 16, 14. It says, now the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul. Saul got one worse because then it says, and an evil spirit from the Lord terrorized him. And again, why did David pray for God not to take his Holy Spirit from him? Because he knew that God could do that. Now, interestingly enough, a a prayer like David's for God to not take away his Holy Spirit is never uttered by anyone in the New Testament. Isn't that interesting? As if they knew that the indwelling then would indeed be permanent so we would ask are there differences between the three the in or coming upon or being filled with there doesn't really seem to be in fact what it does seem to show us is that with all of them there is this temporary 
and transitory nature of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit isn't in them, coming upon them, or filling them in a permanent way, yet some had the Holy Spirit with them or upon them in them for uh, longer durations of time than others. And I would say especially for those that were God's leaders for you know days, months, years. All of this to say, there does seem to be a sense, though, that the Holy Spirit of God abided, abided with the Old Testament saint. As David said in Psalm 139, verses 7 to 10, Where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the dawn, if I dwell in the remotest part of the sea... Even there your hand will lead me and your right hand will lay hold of me. Again, all compliments of the Holy Spirit. But again, his permanent indwelling would be for the future. It would be for the day of Pentecost after Christ had ascended back to the Father. But suffice it to say... When Jesus referenced the Holy Spirit to his disciples in John 14, 17, and remember, that's still a part of the Old Covenant. It's not really the New Covenant yet. It's Old Covenant. He said to them, but you know him because he abides with you and will be in you. So there is a difference there between the Holy Spirit abiding with them at that time versus in the future being in them. He was making clear that while the Holy Spirit was abiding with them at the time, he was not yet permanently indwelling them. And more on that next week. Number four. Ruach, power in salvation. Power in salvation. So let's move on to the work of salvation in the Old Testament. How were people converted? And did the Holy Spirit have anything to do with it? And the fact is, the Holy Spirit gives us several examples of spiritual conversion. But I want us to start with first just kind of a a portrait of Old Testament conversion. What did it kind of more generally look like in the Old Testament? Now, one of the most prominent features of any conversion story, Old Testament or New Testament for that matter, is that we see a changed life. We see someone going from the old to the new, from an old creature to a new creature. Uh, One of my professors at seminary, William Barrick, in an article he wrote for the Master Seminary Journal called Old Testament Teaching About Conversion, he quotes an Old Testament scholar by the name of Paul Heinisch saying this, quote, Conversion implies a break from one's former mode of life. It must be genuine with all one's heart and with all one's soul. An external acknowledgement of having sinned is wholly insufficient. Saul regretted not having observed Yahweh's command and Saul's directions, but his sorrow proceeded merely from the evil consequences of his actions. There is no conversion without abandoning sin because sin breaks intimacy with God. End quote. 
Barak then continues, such change was produced by divine intervention. The individual responded in faith, repentance, and commitment. Divine forgiveness and corporate fellowship within the covenant were results of the conversion in the Old Testament. End quote. Now, some people may believe that God's covenant people, the Israelites, they are already converted by nature of just the fact that they are Israelites and God's chosen people. This is not so. Even God's covenant people needed redemption. Even if they were keepers of the law, they still needed to be converted, for the law did not save anyone. It couldn't save anyone. Turn to um, excuse me, Deuteronomy. If, uh, if you were there in Numbers, then Deuteronomy, just one next door there. Deuteronomy chapter 6. In the book of Deuteronomy really is, is where we see the Old Testament doctrine of conversion most laid out. Here's how Moses presents what a true follower of Yahweh looks like. Listen for, for key elements of that, okay? Deuteronomy 6.4, you're familiar with this passage. Uh, it's the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. That's what a true follower of Yahweh looks like. Turn over to Deuteronomy chapter 10. Chapter 10. We're going to pick up in verse 12. In Deuteronomy 10 and verse 12, Moses continues, Now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require from you? But to fear the Lord your God, to walk in his ways and love him, and to serve the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and to keep the Lord's commandments and his statutes, which I am commanding you today for your good. Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the highest heavens, the earth and all that is in it. Yet on your fathers did the Lord set his affection to love them, and he chose their descendants after them, even you above all peoples as it is this day. So even back then we see God's um, choosing and, and election of, of these that would indeed love him. Then he says this in verse 16, because you might say, well, yeah, anyone can kind of do those things in the external way. Verse 16, so circumcise your heart and stiffen your neck no longer. For the Lord your God is the God of gods and the Lord of lords, the great, the almighty, the awesome God who does not show partiality or take a bribe. He executes justice for the orphan and the widow and shows his love for the alien by giving him food and clothing. So show your love for the alien, for you were aliens in the land of Egypt. You shall fear the Lord your God. You shall serve him and cling to him. And you shall swear by his name. He is your praise. And he is your God who has done these great and awesome things for you 
which your eyes have seen. I'm just going to jump ahead and give you one verse out of Deuteronomy 30, verse 6. He says, Moreover, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, so that you may live. So a quick word about circumcising the heart. And for that, I would say, go ahead and turn with me to Romans chapter 2, because I want you to see this, black and white. Romans chapter 2, verse 28. Circumcising the heart is, as the name implies, it's about cutting off. It's about removing something. In this case, sin. Paul used this same language of circumcising the heart some 1,400 years later to describe the true conversion of a physical descendant of Abraham, right, a Jew, to a spiritual one, taking them from just being a physical descendant to a spiritual one, meaning a true believer. And he says this in Romans chapter 2, verse 28. For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh but he is a jew who is one inwardly and the circumcision is that which is of the heart underline this phrase by the spirit not by the letter and his praise is not from men but from god So here Paul is clearly attributing this circumcision of the heart, the removal of sin, and a changed life, renewal, regeneration. He's attributing it to the Holy Spirit, the very Spirit of God. Now, back in Ezekiel 36, you're welcome to turn there if you like, or you can just listen to me. We're going to read it again. Ezekiel 36 Verses 25 to 27 also speak to this. And certainly Paul, like Jesus with Nicodemus in regard to being born again, also had in mind this passage from the prophet Ezekiel when he said, Then I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness, from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh. I will give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit, capital S, in you, within you, and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. All of this to say, friends, the Israelites of the Old Testament weren't just automatically saved because they were part of God's chosen people being the nation of Israel. There had to occur in them a change, a change brought on by the Spirit, a renewal, a conversion demonstrated primarily by a love for God and obedience to God and then, of course, love for others. So let's move on to some examples of Old Testament conversion. Actually, I'm just going to give you one. There are several. I'll tell you who they are. But I'm just going to give you one because of time. Turn to Genesis chapter 15. 
Genesis chapter 15. The first conversion story that we we see in the scriptures is in regard to Abraham. Then he was called Abram. Now, remember, Abram was from the line of Shem. He was living in Haran, which is way to the northeast of Canaan. Joshua 24 and verse 2 tells us that he and his family were idol worshipers prior to God converting him. In fact, his moment of conversion is really recorded in chapter 15, verse 6, where we read, Then he, that's Abraham, or Abram, believed in the Lord, and he, the Lord, reckoned or credited to him as righteousness. We know this is Abraham's conversion because in Romans 4, verses 1 to 3, Paul attributes Abraham's justification not to his works, but rather to his believing in God. And by the way, Abraham's justification being reckoned or credited to him, it means it's a done deal. He is justified, he is saved, but it's still based on the future merits of Christ. Now, we have to ask the question, so what is it Abram believed or had faith in that brought about his conversion, his salvation? And first off, it was the fact that, well, he'd answered God's call in obedience, uprooted his family, right, from uh, in Ur, and moved them to Canaan, for which he was to receive an inheritance. Hebrews 11 and verse 8 tells us that he did this by faith. Secondly, let us return back to Genesis 15 and pick up in verse 1. Genesis 15 verse 1. After these things, we just got to give you a quick uh, uh, parenthesis here. What are these things? Basically everything that had happened in chapters 12 through 14 with Abram. The last thing being a covenant meeting between he, Melchizedek, and the king of Sodom. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Do not fear, Abram. I am a shield to you. Your reward shall be very great. Abram said, O Lord, God, what will you give me since I am childless and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus? And Abram said, Since you have given no offspring to me, one born in my house is my heir. Abram's thinking, no, this, this, this is not a good thing. And how are these things supposed to happen? I really don't have an heir of my own. Verse 4, then behold, the word of the Lord came to him saying, this man will not be your heir, but one who will come forth from your own body, he shall be your heir. And he took him outside and said, now look toward the heavens and count the stars if you are able to count them. And he said to him, so shall your descendants be. Now, friends, this would be in order to fulfill the promises that God gave Abram even back in chapter 12, verses 2 to 3, when God told him, I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great. And so you shall be a 
blessing and I will, I will bless those who bless you and the one who curses you I will curse and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. In other words, Abraham believed in the promises of God. He believed by faith in all that God covenanted with him. This is no different, friends, than what we hear in the Gospels. It's no different than what we have this side of the cross. That you are saved by faith, which is to say belief. As Jesus said in Mark 1 and verse 15, repent and believe in the gospel. And of course, Ephesians 2, 8, for by grace you have been saved through faith. So the conversion of the Old Testament saint was no different. Every saved person in the Old Testament was saved by faith based on the future merits of Christ. And as I mentioned, there are other examples of Old Testament conversions in the, in, in the Scripture by the likes of Rahab, Ruth, Naaman, the sailors on the ship with Jonah, and even the Ninevites. Unfortunately, we don't have time. We don't have time to go deeper into their stories. We're already at the end of our time here. So lastly, in this little section, we, we, I want to address briefly the Holy Spirit in Old Testament conversion. So we understand all of this, but it still leaves the question, did the Holy Spirit have anything to do with these conversions? And, and though we're fast running out of time, just let me make some general observations and to say, first of all, yes, absolutely, most certainly. When Jesus was telling Nicodemus about the need to be born again by the Holy Spirit, again, that was still under the Old Covenant or Old Testament times. Yeah, it's, we go, well, it's in our Bibles, it's in the New Testament, right? So that's why I use Old Covenant versus New Covenant, right? It was Old Covenant times when he, he told him about being born again, and yet Jesus indicated to Nicodemus because Nicodemus is like, I'm not sure what you're talking about here. You know, how can somebody be physically born again? And Jesus said um, to him, uh, are, are you not a teacher of Israel? And you don't know these things? In other words, you should know these things, Nicodemus. Because he goes back, he's referring back to that Ezekiel passage we read earlier where the Holy Spirit is the one who washes, the Holy Spirit is the one who cleanses from sin. Oh, wait a minute. Isn't that what we just learned in Titus chapter 3 verses 5 and 6? That it is the Holy Spirit who is responsible for washing and regenerating, which is to say born again and renewing someone. So again, in other words, the work of the Holy Spirit to actually regenerate or convert someone is no different from the old to the new. And furthermore, as we've seen, the understanding of God's word, faith, belief, sorrow that leads to repentance are also key elements of Old Testament conversion. Again, compliments of the Holy Spirit. And again, the outcome for any converted soul would then be that evidence of a changed 
life. A reconciled relationship with Yahweh that was broken due to personal sin. A sincere love and commitment to God through obedience. Followed by love and kindness then then shown to others. And really the only difference in the two is that the Holy Spirit is not permanently dwelling in the Old Testament saint prior to conversion. We'll talk more about that uh, next week or the week after. So as we wrap this up, what are, what are the implications for us today? I, you know, going back to last week too, I, I think it's, it's really about giving God, the Holy Spirit, the praise and glory he deserves. Let us not have that pendulum swing way over here. Let us find that, 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 that resting place that is biblical and, and scriptural truth and how that plays out in our life. That we don't kind of fear talking about the Holy Spirit or the work of the Holy Spirit because, wow, we don't want to be associated with those extremists over here. And just like in the Old Testament... The Holy Spirit today continues His work in creation. And as Hebrews 1 and verse 3 tells us, Christ upholds all things by the work of His power. Well, think about how that even occurs in creation today, right? Because the earth is still spinning and rotating and we still have our seasons and weather and all of these things. And just like the Father, where does that power uh, for Christ upholding all things come from? The Spirit, His Spirit, even the Spirit of Christ. And as in the Old Testament, any miracles today, they too come by means of the Holy Spirit. And like in the Old Testament, the miracle of salvation also comes by the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit, by His washing, His renewing. And that's lastly what I'd say. If any of you need to know Christ as your Savior, thankfully right now we are on this side of the cross. And we have so much uh, more information here. We have the gospel of Jesus, the good news that tells us that we are sinners in need of a Savior, and that Savior is Christ, and He went to the cross on our behalf, taking sin upon Himself, becoming sin for us, so that we could be forgiven of our sins, that we would not die in our sin and suffer the consequences of eternal separation from our Creator, that we wouldn't suffer eternity in hell in the lake of fire, but rather that we would be with Christ for all eternity. And if you need to repent and believe, do that today. Right here, right now, today is the day of your salvation. Again, all wrought by the Holy Spirit. I'm going to pray for us now. And, and, and if you would like to acknowledge your sin before a holy God, your need for a Savior, and that Savior being Jesus then I would invite you to pray, even in your own heart, just a, a prayer of true repentance, of true sorrow, and um, an acceptance of the free gift of God's grace uh, for your salvation. Let's go, ahead and, uh, let's go ahead and pray. Father God, we do thank you. We thank you for what we've been able to learn from your word. We're thankful that your word is, is clear, God, and 
And Lord, help us to apply your word to our lives. And of course, if there's anyone out there that needs to, Lord, apply your word in that area of salvation, that they would believe by faith in the truths of the gospel. Put their faith, hope, and trust in Jesus Christ, that the the Holy Spirit would indeed be doing that regenerating work in them, even right now, this very moment. We give you all thanks and all glory, and we pray this in your Son, Jesus' name. Amen. Scripture quotations taken from the New American Standard Bible. Copyright by the Lachman Foundation.